It's good for us to sing psalms and pray words like that, isn't it? Because sometimes we come from a point of a great week and we're on cloud nine and all things are going well. But then so many of us are having exactly the opposite kind of week. We're frustrated. We're in despair. We are maybe even suffering forms of persecution. We look around and see darkness and sin frustrating the church all around us. And it's good that the scripture gives us words for exactly those kinds of moments. We can cry out to the Lord for mercy and deliverance, asking that he would intervene, that he would frustrate the actions of the wicked, and that he would protect his people. So we're thankful that we have words like that to pray and to sing and give expression to those moments. Well, brothers and sisters, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. We're going to be looking at the first five verses. I've been wanting to preach on this text for a little while now, just as a a standalone sermon for us to think about as a congregation. And this Lord's Day struck me as just a good time as any to think about this in the morning and uh, continue on with our series through the letter to the Ephesians uh, this evening. I've been having a number of conversations with folks in our church and folks from our previous congregation and folks in our presbytery and outside of our church and outside the church for that matter, and even as I just, was just alluding to a moment ago, there's a lot of folks who are really beat down. Maybe you're one of them. The world seems to be, at least from our perspective, getting more and more wicked every day. And at times we look around our churches, our congregations, many of which have small and ever-shrinking numbers, at least in the American church, and we start to think, is this what we're doing? Is this making any difference at all? People are discouraged by high-profile Christian leaders, pastors, and others who are apostatizing and leaving the faith. People are also discouraged by cultural Christians who are digging in their heels, nominal folks who are being stubbornly irrational and even inflammatory. There are those that, in the name of love and kindness, they just keep on capitulating to the culture and they abandon, they keep on abandoning the truth on the one hand, and then on the other side, you've got the problem of there are those who are fed up with what they perceive to be weakness and accommodation to the culture, and they stand up for truth in a way that is borderline boorish and laced with spite. And people are asking, where's the marriage between truth and love? Where's the the marching orders that the Christian faith and that the Scripture calls for? Is there any hope, or or rather, is there any room for us who desire to stand for biblical truth and desire to stand for biblical love in an absolutely bizarre and upside-down world? Well, I want to suggest to you that that's why these verses in 1 Timothy chapter 1 are so helpful and clarifying and encouraging, because that is precisely the issue that Paul speaks to. So let's look to 1 Timothy now, shall we? We're going to read at chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 5, but it's really verses... Uh, three and four that we're going to zero in on uh, for our sermon thinking, our sermon theme, and our, the, the majority of our attention this morning. So let's look to God's word, and we'll read it, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help and blessing. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, 
that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. Would you pray with me, brothers and sisters? Open our eyes, Lord, to behold wonderful things from your law. We need your Spirit's help to read and understand and apply all that we study this day. So we pray that you would send your Spirit to illuminate your Scripture to us. Help us to understand it rightly, to do rightly divide the word of truth. And would you seal it to our hearts, and would we treasure these things up for our everlasting good? We ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. If you've been hanging around our denomination, or if you've been hanging around the Reformed churches or tradition or the Calvinistic tradition for any time, any matter of time, maybe you grew up in these traditions, maybe you're somewhat new to it, but sometimes those of us in the Reformed tradition or the Calvinistic tradition, we're sometimes called uh, the Bible guys by folks around us. Now, sometimes they're complimenting us when they say that. Sometimes they're not, and they'll use that as a pejorative. Sometimes we are called the truth guys, and occasionally we might even be called the theology guys or the theology people. But we're not often known as the love guys. We may be famous for our commitment to the Bible and to theology and to truth, but we're not always so famous for our love. Now, maybe that's fair. Maybe that's unfair in terms of how others are estimating us. But in general, that's just not our reputation, by and large, in the wider Christian community. Now, that leads some within our tradition, some within the Reformed tradition, to try to compensate for that weakness by giving a de-emphasis on preaching, a de-emphasis on word ministry and theology and truth. Because you can track with the logic. It's flawed, but the logic goes like this. If we're deficient in love, maybe the problem is is that we care too much about truth. We care too much about theology. We care too much about Bible preaching. And so very often, in a desire to promote congregations that love, there is an emphasis on the ministry of deeds or action or charity and compassion over against and in contrast and often at the expense of an emphasis on the ministry of the word. So what they're saying is, is that the diagnosis is that underlying this lack of love that seems to be happening in our churches is the idea that too much Bible, too much truth, too much theology is a bad thing. And I want to say to you, friends, this morning that that is a wrong diagnosis. That is an incorrect diagnosis. It's a wrong diagnosis, and therefore it leads to a wrong prescription. The problem is not the truth. Truth is never the problem. We're the problem. The problem is not the truth. No, the problem is not the truth. The problem is our own hearts, and I would suggest our problem too often is that we don't understand what the truth is for. We don't often understand what the truth is meant to do. You've heard me say this already, but... This, we live in the age of the false dichotomy, where there's false dichotomies all over the place. And not always, but very often, when you're up against a false dichotomy, and you've got these folks saying, should we be congregations that esteem the truth, or should we, we be congregations that are known for our reputations of love? And the answer is, yes. They're not pitted one, one against the other. They're absolutely entwined in a twin virtue that should be produced in any healthy Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated, God-fearing, God-loving congregation. You don't have to pick truth over love. That's part of what Paul's getting at this morning in his letter to Timothy. Now, I, I admit to you, I confess that as a younger man in my, 
my undergraduate years, I was captivated. I was bowled over by this robust theology that I was finally discovering. Reform theology or Calvinistic theology, however you might like to call it. Finally, I was thinking to myself, finally, here's some real meat and potatoes theology that was derived from the Bible, I thought. Not just some vapid American sentimentalism. Here was some theology that I could sink my teeth into. Reform theology that was strong and solid and and weighty and and persuasive and intellectually cohesive and it exalted Christ and it didn't shy away from the answers and it made much of God. Isn't this wonderful? Unfortunately, I, I was probably far too abrasive and ungracious with the people that didn't agree with me when they didn't see it the way I did. See, I was discovering it fresh for the first time. Um, You ever heard of the expression, the cage stage Calvinist? It's the, it's the young man. Usually it seems to be young men. Young, college-age, red-blooded young men, and they, they, dis, they discover the doctrines of grace for the first time. And I had a professor in college and seminary who said, we're so glad that when these young men, particularly, but young people or, or anyone really, discovers the doctrines of grace for the first time, but too often we see this happening, and maybe the best thing we can do for their benefit and for the benefit of the wider church is when they, when they become a cage-stage brand-new Calvinist, let's just go ahead and lock them away in a closet for about a decade and a half, And then we'll let them out later before they hurt themselves and hurt others when they can calm down a little bit. That might have been a helpful prescription for me. But in any case, they didn't do that. But I got into it. I was drinking deeply from this well. I was was taking in all that I could. And you you get into these conversations with your fellow peers in college, and they're they're not seeing things eye to eye. I I find myself frustrated with them. Are you you just stupid? Are you dim-witted? Why can't you see this? Don't you see the truth of this strong, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting theology? What's your problem? See, I didn't understand what the truth was for. Loving the truth isn't the problem. That's a good instinct. Promoting love towards others isn't wrong. That's a good instinct. But it's understanding how to get from point A to point B, and it's understanding what the truth is meant to produce, what the truth is for. Our goal, our aim in the Christian life as disciples who love the Lord, as those who believe his word, who love his church, those who live for Christ, our goal is neither a loveless truth nor a truthless love. That's the false dichotomy. But rather, our goal is love from truth. And that's what I want us to meditate upon for a few moments together this morning. Now, given given our our, our time constraints, there's so much in this passage that we could think about, that we could dwell on, and maybe we'll come back to this passage again in the future and think more on these things. But there's so much in this passage that I'm going to skip over for our purposes today. I'm going to skip over what I could say about Paul's encouraging word. I mean, did you notice as we were reading the first few words, as Paul's greeting Timothy, even in his salutation, Paul gives a benediction to his son in the faith. He gives him a blessing. Did you notice that in verse 2? Even in this salutation, he can't even, he can't even say, Hello, Timothy, without blessing him. He can't, get, he can't even give him a greeting without praying God's blessing upon him. Grace, mercy, and peace to you, Timothy, my son. I'm going to skip over that. But there's two prime things I want us to see in verses 3 and verse 4 and then in verse 5. Two primary things, and you see it there in your outline in the bulletin insert. The first one is this. Christians, brothers and sisters... Our charge is biblical truth. Our charge as believers in Christ is biblical truth. And when you come to this opening section of 1 Timothy, when you're opening these first few pages, when you're in 1 Timothy, you are in a bestseller. You're in the beginning of the world's all-time bestseller on pastoral ministry. You want the mechanics, you want the nuts and bolts, you want the how-to of pastoral ministry that's been 
bestseller, best known, best beloved the world over throughout generations. You're in it right now when you come to First Timothy. And yet, knowing that, it doesn't quite begin the way you might think. You see there in verse 3, Timothy, I left you in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So the very first thing out of the Apostle Paul's mouth, that is he's saying, here's how you do pastoral ministry, Timothy. Here's how you build the church and grow the church and keep the church and encourage the church and strengthen the church. And you're thinking, well, is he, what, what's he going to get at? Surely it's got to be some positive, uplifting, encouraging thing. The first thing out of Paul's mouth is a negative exhortation. He says, Timothy, here's job number one. Teach your people not to teach or heed false teaching. That's his first exhortation. Teach your people not to teach or not, and not to heed false teaching. Look at the language. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, that doesn't mean variety. That's not what he's saying. He's not condemning variety. He means heresy. It doesn't mean preach the same sermon every Lord's Day. It doesn't mean every Bible study or every Sunday school lesson or every family worship time should be uniformly identical. But it does mean that for those who are teaching God's word to God's people, it means teach them under shepherds, teach them not to accept false things and teach the people not to listen to those false teachers teaching false things, not to entertain them or countenance them, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, myths, what does he mean by that? Well, that's a term that pops up all over the New Testament. Paul uses it. Peter uses it. Uh, it's a negative term characterizing beliefs as fanciful or untrue or even deceptive. Uh, very often, cultural myths, Greek cultural myths uh, involving the gods. It was very popular in pagan society. It would have been very popular and common in Ephesus, where Timothy is. And very often, such myths were used to excuse immoral behavior. Uh, you can think of things like the, the Bacchanalia festivals and the debauchery that would accompany those. And you can imagine putting yourself in Greek culture. Well, if Bacchus did this, then we have every right to participate in these things as well. It's creeping in all over society. It even had, was creeping into the church in some cases. Paul says, don't give countenance to that. I don't care how popular it is. I don't care how widespread it is in the Greek culture. Don't you give it a foothold. Don't entertain those myths. And then genealogies here... Well, that likely refers to the, the way some people would take on a, a speculative use of the Old Testament accounts of biblical characters or, or family trees. You see, in these days, and as, the, as the, the Jewish people are spread throughout the Roman Empire and they're influenced by Greek thought and other things, there were these Jewish mystical cults who were obsessed with trying to tie back their families with some ancient great known personality from the Old Testament or some ancient great patriarch. You see something like that even in discourse today where you might, I, I see it a lot in online arguments. Um, you see people debating back and forth and then somebody will come in and say, well, you know, my 18th great, 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 great grandfather was Thomas Jefferson. So you just need to be quiet and listen to my argument as if that trumps the argument they're making because they invoke a well-known figure as an ancestor of theirs. Something like that was happening in these days with the Old Testament figures uh, with modern day Jews. People would say, well, my sect, my cult that I'm part of, we're connected to Ezekiel because he's my great, great, great granduncle. And that's why this teaching is true and you should listen. Or, well, my lineage is connected to Moses. So you need to listen up to what I'm saying. There's many things we could say here. But Paul tells you that if you look at the end of verse four, 
He tells you why false teaching and why speculation and why these myths and genealogies are a waste of time and why they're so bad. And here it is. He says, these things which promote speculations rather than the stewardship, that thing which is entrusted to you, Timothy, the stewardship from God that is by faith. Why is truth so important? Why is that where you should devote your energies and your time? Why are these other things a waste of time? Because the kind of love that Paul wants to grow in the Christian congregation does not grow in the soil of falsehood. It grows only, it only grows in the soil of truth. That's why truth is so important. Only truth can edify. Sound teaching matters. It's not incidental, according to the Apostle Paul. It's central. It's not just a nice benefit. You, know, you, you come, you get together, you join a, a, love, a lovely church. They're full of nice people. They're wonderful and encouraging and uplifting. And if we get some sound teaching out of it as well, well, that's just an added bonus or a nice tangential benefit. No, Paul says. The teaching from the pulpit, the teaching in the Sunday school rooms, in our, our prayer groups, in our Bible studies, men, brothers, when we lead our families in devotions with our wives and our children, sound teaching, correcting, uh, correct teaching, biblically accurate teaching matters. It's not peripheral. It's not incidental. It is central, according to the apostle. Understanding and communicating the truth of God's word matters because it will impact the spiritual health over those with whom we have contact or influence. Paul knows that's true. He knows that's true of Pastor Timothy, and he knows that that's true of all Christians down through the ages. Truth matters. And according to the apostle, you cannot correct lovelessness in a congregation by promoting truthlessness. Maybe lovelessness is a real problem. Absolutely, it needs to be addressed. But you don't address it, you don't correct it, you don't fix it with truthlessness. The truth is the necessary soil of the love that you want to grow. Right? If you want to grow corn or any pick any other crop, I'll be absurd here, but you can't plant it in a bucket of laundry detergent, you can't plant it in a box of Legos or some other preposterous substance. It will only grow rightly in the soil that it was intended to grow in. Soil is the required environment for your desired crop to grow. So it is with love. You want love to grow in the life of the body, you've got to plant it in a soil of truth. That's a non-negotiable. Downplaying doctrine, making theology something that's marginal, putting the Bible on the back burner, that is not the way to produce a more loving congregation. It's actually a surefire way of producing a less loving congregation. There ought to be no such thing as truthless love. At the very least, there should never be such a thing as truthless Christian love. And you know as well as I do that the world is telling us today that there is. You hear it all the time, right? Doctrine divides. Doctrine is the great impediment to Christian love. And until we get rid of that nasty doctrine that people are fighting about all the time, we are never going to be able to love rightly or love fully. Friends, I urge you, do not listen to the world and do not listen to the world when it gets into the church and tries to sell us that false package of goods. And so here comes the Apostle Paul saying, Timothy, my son in the faith whom I love, whom I've trained I want to, whose, whose life I want to see spent in the service and the labor of the Lord Jesus Christ for as long as the Lord gives him. Timothy, here's the reason why it's so important to keep false teaching from flourishing in the church. Because it's a spiritual dead end. 
It is detrimental to the soul and to the life of the Christian heart and mind. Downplaying doctrine doesn't lead to maturity. It leads to fruitless, soul-killing speculation. Back when I was an undergraduate, I was preaching for my, my home church one summer. They, they invited me to, to, to fill the pulpit. And uh, there was an older lady who came up to me after the morning sermon. And uh, she was nice enough. She was polite enough. But unfortunately, the, the poor woman had gotten mixed up in some weird neo-Gnostic Greek dualistic theology. She was absolutely persuaded that there were two Holy Spirits because Scripture uh, spoke of the Spirit of God, and then a few other verses it'll say it speaks of the Spirit of Christ. In fact, you can see that in Romans chapter 8. One sentence, Paul says the Spirit of God, and the very next sentence, he might say the Spirit of Christ. And I, I had just been preaching uh, from that text in Romans chapter 8. And so according to her, there's two Holy Spirits, and therefore the doctrine of the Trinity was a heresy because there were four members of the Godhead, a quadrinity, I suppose. I, I don't know. So she engaged me in conversation after the sermon and wanted to push back on that notion of the Trinity. And after nearly an hour and 45 minutes of fruitless conversation and debate, I asked her, I said, ma'am, let's just assume, let's just assume for a moment that you're correct, that your doctrine is right, and 2,000 years of the church have gotten this wrong. Let's assume. What practical difference would your new theology make in the life of God's people? She paused she thought for a moment, she said, I don't know, but it's just an interesting speculation, I think. And the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, this is what that kind of doctrine and entertainment and, and countenancing leads to. Fruitlessness, waste of time that ultimately is detrimental to the soul. Timothy, it is so important that you preach the truth because anything except the truth is going to lead to fruitlessness in the congregation. Serve God's people well and you promote a truthful, not a truthless love. So that's the first thing we see here. The aim of our charge is biblical truth. The aim of our charge is biblical truth. That's the first thing. But then secondly, brothers and sisters, Christians, our aim is biblical love. Our aim is biblical love. Again, we live in the age of the false dichotomy. I reject that premise outright. I hope you do too. More than two things can be true at the same time. We can love biblical truth, promote biblical truth, and value and promote and cultivate biblical love. Look at verse 5. Here Paul exhorts Timothy to minister in light of the goal of Paul's instruction as an apostle. Just hear what he says. The aim, verse 5, the aim of our charge, or maybe if you're looking at a different translation, the, the goal of our instruction, the goal of what we're exhorting you with in our preaching, the goal, the, the aim, the end of our ministry is, and just pause, do you hear what Paul is saying? Paul's about to tell his young protege in the faith what he needs to be shooting for and what he, Paul, has been shooting for in his apostolic ministry. So when the Apostle Paul is about to tell me the point of all the preaching and all the teaching and all the praying and all the Bible study and the discipleship that we do as a church, when he's about to tell me, here's the point in all your Christian life and all your Christian labor in the life of Covenant PCA, my ears perk up, and I want to hear precisely what he's about to clue me in on. Every one of us in this room ought to be all ears. Paul is about to tell us what he wants to see his ministry produce, and he can give it to you in one word. Love. He's a truth guy, Paul is, because he wants his congregation to love, to love rightly, and he wants them to be characterized by love. So again, don't let someone pit truth against love. Don't ever let that happen. The truth is for love. 
Paul is looking for a truth-produced love in Timothy's people. Love which is produced by the work of the Holy Spirit, using, working, wielding, sowing his truth in the hearts of his people to produce that love in their lives. And he's about to tell Timothy the goal of his apostolic instruction. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, Paul is saying, Timothy, the goal of my apostolic ministry as I declare the truth is to see disciples who love, that is, who live self-giving lives for God and others. And that kind of love is only wrought, it is only produced by apostolic truth. Biblical love. You can't have biblical love without biblical truth. There's no shortcut around it. The kind of love that Paul is talking about, Christian love, comes from truth that has taken hold of the inner man, our our inmost being, and gripped us. And look at his language. Where does it issue from? It issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, this love flows from a heart which is in faith union with Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this heart has been gripped by the truth in such a way that three things, three things are leading to love in their lives. Let's think about those things just briefly. A pure heart. What's Paul talking about there? Of course, he's talking about the desires. You remember the Lord Jesus in the Beatitudes in his Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. A pure heart is a heart with one desire, one longing, one central affection, and that is to see God. And that's the great battleground of the Christian life. The the arena where the great spiritual battle takes place in us is the desires. And here's the thing. You and I can't change the desires. We're almost like Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 37. Remember what the Lord says to him? Okay, prophet Ezekiel, here's now what I want you to do. Ezekiel, I want you to change these desires. And then you, you kind of turn to the Lord like Ezekiel and you say, yeah, how exactly am I supposed to do that? And you remember what the Lord says? Prophesy, son of man. Prophesy over these dry bones. And what are, you, what are you to declare? Do you declare practical how-to tips on how to be more loving? No, fundamentally, you declare the truth. You preach the truth. You tell the truth. And then Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, takes that truth and he shapes the desires of his people. You can't get into their hearts to change their warped desires. He can. He can, and he does. But you get there with the truth that he has given you in the word, and especially the truth about what he has done, and the Lord will take and reshape those desires. The 19th century Scottish minister Thomas Chalmers had this wonderful sermon title, and he eventually expanded it and turned it into a a little booklet, and the title was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I love that title, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That is, when the gospel is proclaimed... When the truth is proclaimed about sinners who stand at that great chasm, fruitless efforts to ever reconcile themselves to God, impossible for them to ever stand in in a reconciled relationship with the Holy God. And so God sent His Son who took on flesh and lived that life that we ought to have lived and never could and died that death that we ought to have died to bear the wrath and justice of God in our room and in our stead who died bearing that penalty, who rose again victoriously and ascended to the Father's right hand where he reigns in glory and shall one day come again. 
and that all those who put their faith in him shall forever be pardoned and cleansed and justified and sanctified in one day and are now adopted and one day glorified. When that truth is proclaimed and that message is dispersed, the Holy Spirit brings a man from death to life and he hears that and he works that truth into his heart and down into his bones and he, he takes those old lusts and he takes those old loves of the old man and he drives them out. He expels them so that that new man sets his love and affections and desires on the things that God loves. Friends, by the Spirit, as God is remaking you and refashioning you after the likeness of His Son, and He's reforming your desires, He's reforming your affections by giving you new affections that drive out those wicked old affections and desires. He's doing that. And what is the means? What is the means? What is the method whereby the Lord is pleased to make that happen? It's by proclaiming truth. Truth is the means. Truth is the catalyst, if you like, for new affections and a pure heart. The truth about God and the truth about sin and the truth about the gospel and the human condition and the truth about biblical theology. See, friends, to tell this truth is actually the most loving thing you could do in all the world because it changes lives. It redeems and ransoms sinners by God's grace. So a pure heart. Secondly, the Holy Spirit has gripped a heart by the truth, and he's gripped it in such a way that things are leading to love and issuing from a pure heart, but then also a good conscience. Paul's talking here about a conscience that is self-aware and informed by the Word of God. It seems to me that there are many people today that are trying to get relief from conscience by denying the consequences of ongoing sinfulness. You see that? Maybe you have some folks in your lives that are close to you that are doing that very thing. They're trying to get relief from this guilt and this misery that they feel by denying the reality of sin and the reality that sin brings miserable consequences. And the biblical answer to the relief of an accusing conscience is just so much better than that. Not to deny the realities or try to sweep them under the rug. So rather, for these people, Paul says, these people are freed from guilt, not, not by denying the consequences of their ongoing struggle with sin, but instead reveling, reveling in the reality of the one who has borne their guilt and their condemnation in their place. And what happens to that kind of person? Well, instead of working so hard and being so turned inward to try and deal with their guilt, suddenly they find themselves set free and they're able to think about other people. And that's the only way that they can love. You see, love is not self-centered. Rather, love is twofold. Love is Godward, and love is elseward. It is focused on others. According to Paul, you can't be focused on others until you have a good conscience, a conscience that's been delivered from your sense of condemnation because of what God has done for us. And you can only know that. You can only get to that space of a good conscience, that place of a good conscience, if the truth has been declared and you've come to embrace it by faith. So that's the second thing. And then thirdly, Paul says, a sincere faith. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That is, an unfeigned faith focused on Jesus. Now, now notice all these things together lead to a person who is set free from self to live for God and live for others. God has liberated them. God has set them free. You see, now their desires are redirected. Their conscience is cleansed. Their, their faith is focused sincerely upon the Lord. And now they're set free from bondage and guilt and, and self-preoccupation to do what? They can love because love is serving each other at our own expense. And we can't do that if we're self-preoccupied. We have to be set free to do that. 
And so the Apostle Paul says that's what happens when apostolic truth is proclaimed, when biblical truth is proclaimed. And the Spirit takes that truth, and the Lord Jesus takes that truth, and He shapes a heart by that truth, and He produces a heart, a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Brothers and sisters, if I can put it to you this way, we are in the business of a God-created love in the lives of blood-bought disciples. And that means that we are in the business of a truth-created love. And if we are unloving, or if we're perceived, I should say, as being unloving, it's not the fault of the truth. And if we are truly unloving, it's not the fault of the truth. It's because that truth has not yet had its way with us. Or perhaps we do not yet know what the truth really is for. Is there still a place in this culture for these kinds of Christians? Well, the Apostle Paul certainly seems to think so, because that's the method, that's the only method that works, and it's the method that God has ordained, and it's always been the way that God has worked in the lives of his people. It's my prayer that we, as a congregation, will be so captured by the truth that people will not say, oh, those folks at Covenant PCA, they're so loving, they don't get caught up in all that theology and all that doctrine, but rather that people would say, look at the love Look at the love that God's truth has produced in them. A pastor told this story a number of years ago. David Brooks, uh, he's a secular Jew who often writes a column for the New York Times and Washington Post and other such publica- publications. David Brooks had just discovered the writings of John Stott. And he'd been frustrated with the way evangelicals were often depicted in the mainstream media, often being represented to the world as men like Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell and things like that. And, and he had encountered enough evangelical leadership, this, this Jewish, secular Jewish man, had encountered enough evangelical leadership to know that there was much more substance to evangelicalism than these popular uh, media figures would often suggest. And so he stumbled across the writings of John Stott, and he said that he devoured them because there he met a rigorous intellect who really cared about the Bible and truth and theology and ethics in areas where those ethics were unpopular in the world. And yet he also met a man that he said was absolutely, undeniably loving. And he tells us, he said, when he read John Stott, he said, it was like reading Mr. Rogers with a backbone of steel. Well, friends, we don't need to be Mr. Rogers, but we must be men and women of love with backbones of steel, of people who are products of a truth-produced love and who so hold and proclaim the truth tenaciously but are not satisfied until that truth has had its way with us and our families and this congregation so that it would produce love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Take heart, dear believers, and press on because the calling to which God has called his blood-bought people is to be lovers of truth, biblical truth. Because if you do that, well, that is the most profoundly loving thing you can do toward God and your fellow man. Praise his name. Shall we pray? Lord God, we pray that you would do this work of grace in us so that we would be saved by your love, your own love, because our own love will never save us. Only your love can save us. Only your grace, O Christ, can save us. And so, God, would you cause those good works, love toward God, love toward neighbor, your love, would you cause them to abound in our lives by your grace and that we, though never trusting in them, for a moment, for one ounce of our justification, would nevertheless live and abide in those good works for the glory of your name. We do ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.